Welcome to another edition of the ADOS podcast. Let's get started. So I have Linda Miller joining me right now. I'm going to allow you the opportunity to introduce yourself because you're going to probably do a better job at it than I will. Um, So Linda, please um, (laughs) tell the audience who you are. Well, my name is Linda Miller, and I grew up on the north side of Minneapolis, and I'm here today because I am now a children's book author, and so thank you for inviting me here, Elijah, uh, today. I um, grew up, again, on north Minneapolis. I went to North High School. Um, I started working with kids when I was about 14, actually, um, as a tutor with kids. On the north side, I used to love to read. I think I lived at Sumner Library because it was a couple blocks from my house. So um, I used to just go there all the time and I used to help out whenever I could. So I've always kind of been a giver. Um, But I did childcare for about 33 years. And during that time of doing childcare, I started to write stories and write songs and stuff about my childcare. I had a pretty diverse childcare in a predominantly white neighborhood and I just couldn't find things for the kids. And so I just started writing stories. And I think that that's how I uh, developed a love for writing, you know, children's stories. Um, But from there, I ended up doing some training in diversity and inclusion. It kind of, you know, emerged into a new position and uh, started helping childcare programs and childcare centers be more inclusive in their childcare programs. So it evolved from there and um, really got a focus on, you know, helping people put diversity and being inclusive in their storytelling and in their, the things that they were introducing to children. But that's a little bit about me. Awesome. That's amazing. And you you mentioned that one of your uh, goals is to diversify that industry, right? Of, of authors, um, yeah. especially coming from places like Northside, Minneapolis, being a woman, um, being a- African-American woman at that, you know, have you seen other people in that community who look like you, who are in the same space? Meaning in the community when I was doing childcare or uh, writing, book writing, author. Yeah. You know, it's start, you're starting to see more, you know, I'm involved in a lot of Facebook groups um, on Facebook and uh, there's a couple of black authors and illustrator groups that I'm part of. Um, so I think the more I dig, the more I find, you know, they're not just out there like regular books and book groups and things like that. You have to look for them and become part of them. But I think there's a large group of African-Americans that are really pulling together uh, collaboratively to make a mark on the industry of children's literature, you know, literacy and children's books. You, you know, it's interesting uh, when we were talking last week, you know, we we're talking about how underrepresented our population is in that industry. I actually went off and did some research as I told you I would. And I found yeah. that there is about 180,000 people um, who are classified as writers and authors in America and out of that 180,000 people, roughly about 6,000 of them consider themselves to be black. Um, and it is a, a female-dominated industry, right? Meaning that there's more female writers and authors than there are males. Um, but overwhelmingly, the majority of them are all white. And there's a, a, the, I think the next group of people are Asian Americans. And, right. and then black Americans are just 6,000 out of that 180,000. I mean, to me, that was just kind of mind blowing. I mean, I knew it was low, but that's really, really low. And this is across the country. 
Right. This is a, there's a huge disparity in um, Black authors and BIPOC authors. Um, it's, it's not easy to break into the market and it's not easy to get people to hear you and really recognize you for your style of writing and who you are as an author of color. Um, yeah, it's roughly about 80, 85% of books that are reviewed um, across the nation are from white authors. They're really not from authors of color. So, you know, the hope is that one day that we can, you know, reduce that gap and increase because there's a lot of us out there, you know, and um, some of us may or may not have given up on our dream of writing and um, because it's so hard, it's a lot of work and it's really hard. So um, the hope is that, you know, we can, you know, reduce that gap. Were you ever at that point in your career where you're just like, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm about to go do something <laughs> else. I'm done writing these books. I'm not getting anywhere. Have you? Did you ever experience that at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my first children's book, Isaiah Sunglasses, I actually wrote that when I did childcare over 25 years ago. Um, well, longer than that, actually. Um, and in 20... Um, maybe around the year 2000, I tried to submit it to be published. And of course you get your rejection letters over and over and over. And so at that point I just said, well, maybe this just isn't for me. You know, maybe this isn't the time. And so I actually put it aside. I didn't do anything. I just kind of gave up on it. And I, it, I didn't stop writing, but I gave up on trying to break through the market at that time. And then a few years ago, um, I ran into a friend of mine who started, was starting, she's an educator and she was starting a publishing company, an African-American woman, Mary Terrace, who started Stride Publishing. And, um, and we, we were friends and so we were just chatting and I gave her Isaiah sunglasses. I said, well, here, take a look at this. And then she loved it. And so she wanted to publish it. So I, I ended up being one of her founding authors. And so that was the first book that I had uh, traditionally published through a publisher. And, um, and since that has, uh, my contract ended with Stride. And then at that point, I had to decide what I was going to do if I was going to continue writing if I was going to continue pursuing this, you know, I, I'm not young, I am 65 years old. And so it's like, do you start this in retirement? It's like, sure, why not? And so I decided to self publish and go that route. I learned a lot going the traditional route. And then I said, okay, let me try this. You know, I'm not going to give up on it yet. And um, so I self published my first book, Miley's Magical Curls, uh, earlier this year in March. And so it was a lot of work and I'm not going to quit at this point because I love it so much. Well, well, I got a few things to say about that. But the first thing is, wow, 65 years old, you don't look a day over 40. <laughs> Thank wow. you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have eight grandchildren. Eight grandchildren. Oh. I do. And yeah, I draw and from them a lot the too. Wall? They don't drive you up the oh, wall? Oh, no. No, absolutely not. No. I mean, yeah, they do. <laughs> Sometimes, but I love them so much. I love talking to my grandkids because I draw a lot from children when I talk with children, um, my ideas and, and for book ideas, and they have no filter. You know, I love having conversations with them because they're just going to tell you straight, you know, mm -hmm. and um, some of the things that they say, they just give me so much material. That's all I can say. <laughs> so. You know what? That was going to be my next question is where do you currently drive or what do you currently look for? or, you know, uh, in people or just in the community 
or whatever to draw inspiration from in your creativity? Like what currently drives your work now? I know before you said it was you're working in childcare. You mm-hmm. always had a passion for teaching and working with kids. Right. You know, what currently drives that inspiration and creativity to this day? So I draw from a lot of different places. And so I'll take Isaiah Sunglasses first, um, my first book. It's a rhyming book. And um, part of my childcare program was early literacy because I really, really wanted children to learn to read before they entered kindergarten. So everything that I, I created or wrote or sang or whatever I did with the kids in the kids program had to do with early literacy. But then Isaiah Sunglasses came along. I got this idea because I worked um, with special needs kids and I had deaf parents in my program. Um, and so I got this idea to write this rhyming book about a kid who was blind. And the thing about it is that I didn't want people to know he was blind until later in the book. And so um, Isaiah, I just wanted people to see Isaiah for who he was, a little kid, rambunctious, you know, did everything, you know, probably drove his parents crazy and everything, but I didn't want the reader and the listener to know that he was blind until later on. I wanted this, I wanted the listener to really see and listen who he was before they saw his disability. And so I wrote Isaiah's Sunglasses and that was my first published book. The second book, Miley's Magical Curls, is a story that we're just starting to hear about now. It's about an African-American father who's divorced from his, his ex is a white woman, he's African-American, and then he has a biracial daughter. And so in the divorce, the, Miley was five when they got divorced. And so um, he had to learn how to do her hair. And she has tons and tons and tons of curls. And so the story is about his determination to make his daughter feel proud, his determination to make her feel valued, his determination to learn to do something to help her feel beautiful. And in the process, they developed a really strong bond with one another. So, um, and then of course, it's about the hair. So in the back of the book, there's tips for, you know, how to deal with curls because you know in the BIPOC community we know our hair is a little different you know you handle it a little differently but then my um, latest book the two flowers I think that this was my greatest challenge because I wrote this I was invited to a lower school academy uh, rally to speak during Black History Month this year earlier this year. And so um, what I do when I go to speak with children and youth is I tell a story. And although I read Isaiah Sunglasses, I also wrote this story called The Two Flowers because I really wanted the young people to understand more about discrimination, social inequality, and bias. And so sometimes it's kind of hard to explain that to kids, especially now with everything that's happening. It's a little bit more challenging. Well, why are you protesting? What is this all about, really? You know, so, and trying to help them understand systemic, the root of systemic racism and social inequality. So I wrote this story called The Two Flowers. I didn't want to use people and I'm a gardener, so it was like a perfect fit for me. So I wrote this story about two flowers, you know, and how one is treated differently than the other. One is treated basically better than the other, and then the result of what can happen to that. And, um, and I did that in a way to help them see, because who doesn't like flowers, you know? But because people see the beauty in flowers, they don't always see the beauty in other people. So there's a lot of messages with this story and it was a harder one because it was, I had to try to explain it to people. 
and um, educators and teachers and parents who are going to be reading this to their children to help them understand it. So, so I draw from a lot of different things and I, all of my books, I want to have a message. And so with Isaiah Sunglasses, the message is working with disabilities and not judging people based on their disability. In Molly's Magical Curls, again, it's, you don't hear this story about African-American dads. Now, Hair Love came out earlier this year, which was beautiful. So you started to hear more, they, they took it to the top. And so you're starting to hear more about that part of our culture. So it's just a story that you don't hear. And then you also don't hear about single dads, really, really parenting, good African-American fathers who parent their children and strive to make their children um, be who they can be and are really committed to that relationship. So you don't hear enough of those stories. And then again, the two flowers is just, the timing is just crazy because I wrote the story for Black History Month and then we've had all these events this year. So the timing um, uh, was just kind of prime for me to do something like that. And so I hadn't intended to put the two flowers into a book, but then somebody suggested I put it into a book and I did this year. And so that's my second self-published book that was just released in August. Wow. You, you know, Linda, it sounds like, you know, what you're doing is just really changing the narrative around all these stereotypes that have existed in our community for, for generations. And I, I commend you on that. I want to support you in that endeavor. I think you're doing some great work and that's what we need to do in the year 2020 and moving forward in this nation is giving back that power to our community to really change the narrative and show who we really are and you know how hard working our families are especially our black men when it comes to taking care of their kids I know a bunch of right. them um, but we're always seen as you know um, dead stereotype people, you know the stereotype exactly mm -hmm. so it sounds like you know you're doing your part and changing those narratives through your literary devices. So thank you so much for doing that. And you touched a little bit on challenges and barriers that our community has faced and that um, the characters in your books have faced. What challenges and barriers have you endured as a black woman fighting for a voice in an industry that disproportionately represents black and brown people? We touched on it a little yeah. bit, but let's go into a little bit more detail about that. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's tough because when you're you start networking, trying to connect, trying to meet people, trying to get your voice heard, trying to share your work with people, and then sometimes you get negative feedback and sometimes you get positive feedback, you know. Um, I think the first thing is to remember not to sell yourself short. Just trust and believe in what you're doing and just keep going. You know, I'm a woman of faith, so I believe that um, something good's gonna come from this. If I don't give up, if I don't give up, if I don't get angry, if I don't get frustrated, if I don't give up. I, um, so, you know, I remember submitting a story one time to a publisher um, and this was through word of mouth. I actually know somebody, um, Curtis DeYoung, he, he's written several books on um, reconciliation and, and racial reconciliation and all kinds of things. And so I was talking with him and he um, made a recommendation for me to just share my work with somebody. And I did. And um, from that, the response was that, well, we don't really do these type of stories. And so, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can take that. And I just took it with a grain. You know, and I said, okay, um, that's not their type of story. And then maybe I can shift and write 
that is their type of story or I can go the other direction. So what I did was I continued to pursue other um, avenues. Um, there's a few publishers out there that are focused on diverse books alone. And, but the thing about it is they're so hard to get into. I can't submit anything to them unless I have an agent, things like that. Um, so, and then finding an agent can be hard because even as an African-American woman or a BIPOC woman, how do you find somebody that's a good match? How do you, you know, really get that person that understands your style of writing and stuff like that? So that's another hard search, you know, and that's going to take advantage of you, right? That we right, uh, right. You want to you want to have a, a good partner in that, you know, in an agent. So finding an agent can be hard. So I, I've not had an agent. I'm doing everything pretty much on my own. And so, and you don't want to hand out, you know, but sometimes you got to put the pride aside and just say, you know, because somebody, I think everybody who's been successful, somebody has extended a hand to them. And so um, just working through all those barriers and then, and it can get frustrating, you know, to do that. Um, but I'm just, you just keep going. Yeah. Yep. You're absolutely right. Um, did you have many local influences growing up? Um, or even now to help you through this process? Anyone that lend advice and guidance to you at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you mean as an author, author as or? As an author. Yeah. So um, I think uh, Mary with Stride Publishing, you know, she had a mission and a goal. She has a mission and goal with um, her authors and has given some good advice. I um, just participated in a, a Facebook event earlier this week. Uh, Twin Cities Book Salon uh, hosted uh, Dara Beavis from Wise Inc. And uh, she was just talking to us uh, authors about, you know, the work, the challenges and, you know, what you're faced with. And actually what she probably didn't even know is that she was actually affirming me when she was talking, that everything that I was doing was spot on, you know, that I was doing the right things, that I was staying committed, that I was writing, um, that I should continue writing and things like that. And she talked a little bit about some of the, you know, the challenges, you know, you learn as you go, you know, sometimes you will make mistakes and stuff, but you just keep going and just take that as something you've learned from your mistakes. So she was really helpful. And then I have to say the Facebook groups that I'm in, because they're nothing but authors and illustrators. And there's always dialogue every day, I can open up one of the groups and just listen to the dialogue and see what's happening. Um, and I can ask a question, I can ask any question as an author or even a self publisher. And I always get a response. So there's some really good space on Facebook to get support from other people who are in the field and have had different experiences in the industry. You, you know, I always say that Facebook is, you know, it's the destruction of us. But honestly, Facebook could be used for a lot of good. In your example, it's, it's allowed yeah. you to connect with other people who are in a similar situation uh, as you or maybe in a position that you want to get to and you can connect with them. You can learn from them. You guys can learn together as a community. So Facebook is good in that regard. <laughs> it really has benefited me as an author. And I also want to say the loft is pretty awesome. I um, participated in a workshop and um, they're actually the ones that suggested, made the recommendation to join Facebook groups, get your name out there, get to know other people, hear other people's stories and things like that. And the loft is actually an excellent place to get support and guidance and help 
you know, as an emerging or even a seasoned author. I'm an emerging author. I'm publisher. I've just been in the field really for the last three years. So. And, and I'm very familiar with the loft, but for the audience members, um, can you explain a little bit about what the loft is, where it's located and what kind of support they have to offer people? Well, you know, I think everything's pretty virtual now, but like I said, they do offer a lot of workshops and classes in support of the literary field in general. You know, they um, support you, they, anything you need to know. And I think really it's in their workshops, offerings that they have. And um, I think that's pretty much it for me. I mean, that's my experience with the law right now. I'm sure they do a lot more things than that, um, but it's been the workshops and the classes and then the support, you know, to publishers and authors in the field. Great. So what additional advice or guidance can you lend to young, expiring Black writers and authors? I know you said you've only been publishing for the last three years, but you've been writing for a number of years. What advice can you lend our young people Right. Yeah, well, you, you need to know that you want to do it for sure. You know, you, you have to commit to it. And um, if you're going to go into the field, just study and learn as much as you can about it, because you really want to be the best you can be at it. You know, take classes on writing, have dialogues with people, you know, talk to other people, including us older folks, you know, we're, we're kind of know some stuff. So, you know, don't leave us out of it. Um, you know, work hard, learn harder, you know, if you can. And um, yeah, I think that's what I can offer right now. You know, don't give up if you really love to do it because there's something there that we probably need to hear. Work hard, learn harder. I don't think I heard that one before, Linda. Okay, um, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> might take that from you with your permission, of course. I, oh, I sure. like that. Work hard, learn harder. And, you know, you know, people say things like that and we label them as cliches, but it's a cliche for a reason, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. So that's what I always say. And, and I think our young people, you know, they hear, okay, work hard, work hard, work hard, but they don't see the results. So then they stop. And for me, it's yeah. like, yeah, you have to keep working and praying. Uh, you know, I pray to God and, you know, I, mm -hmm. I definitely give credit to God for all of my accomplishments. So it's a combination of praying, the combination of working hard and being persistent. And then you will eventually see those results. You're not going to make that million dollars right away. But you'll, right. if, if your goal is money, monetary goals, you'll see 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, you stay persistent, you stay praying, you stay dedicated to what you're doing, and that should just grow. And I think that's going to be the same recipe in everything that you do in life. Um, it's just right. stay persistent, stay dedicated. Yeah, you can't give up. If you talk to an athlete, they would never tell you that they give up, you know, or anything like that. You don't want to give up on your dream, um, even if you don't see results. And then it could be that one time, you know, you're almost there and then you gave up, and then, but it was that next inch you know, that you could have taken and it could have made the difference, the whole, all the difference in the world, you know, so you want to continue doing it. And as I've said, yes, I've been writing for a long time. And as I said, I'm 65. So I started when I was young. So this is just something that's just starting for me. It's not that everybody's journey is going to be the same as mine, but, you know, in between I had a family, raised a family and did other things, you know, and learned a lot of other things that, you know, helped with my journey here. The other thing I was going to say about Isaiah Sunglasses, when I tried to uh, get it published back in 2000, I realized when it was published in um, 2017, 20, 
yeah, 2018, um, that it was um, 2000, it wasn't ready. It wasn't the right time, even though I was trying to do it. And then fast forward to 2018, now's the time to do it because I think back then I would not have gotten the illustrations that I've gotten you know, when I first publish it. And the other thing about Isaiah Sunglasses, I have to republish it now into a new edition because my contract ended with Strive. So at that point I had to decide, was I gonna just let the story go now? And it's like, no, I have to hire a new illustrator, find a new illustrator and redo the book um, in a new edition. And that's okay. So things do evolve. But yeah, back in 2000, it wasn't the right time as I look back. Wow. And, you know, I think that just reaffirms to me that timing is everything, you know, and you're initially were rejected, but again, you stay persistent, you stay dedicated. And 18 years later, that same book that was denied publication is now published. Um, And now it is the right time. I think it's an opportune time to be introducing different types of books and narratives um, that highlight and emphasize racial equity um, and other types of uh, equity as well in the community is like disability. So right. I mean, you really have found your voice within your publications and your in your books. So I mean, that's an amazing thing. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think, um, as I said, it kind of evolved into this because I think even as young people, so, so every time I tell people one of my favorite books to read when I was a kid was To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, and there's been, you know, some controversy around that story and stuff like that. But in the 60s, in the mid-60s, we didn't have a whole lot to read. And so that was just one of the books that I was drawn to. And at that time, I didn't know why I was drawn to it. I just loved the story. You know, I didn't really understand the trial and really what was happening you know, in the trial part of it um, as a young kid, but I knew I was drawn to it for some reason. So I think sometimes, you know, we're drawn to things for a reason. And so as far as helping people understand the importance of diversity and inclusion and systemic injustice and things like that, even as a young kid, I didn't realize that I would grow into really wanting to share more with people about that through stories for children. My daughter um, and I, we have a small consulting business where we both do the work. So like I I am an IDI, an intercultural development inventory qualified administrator. And um, uh, she actually teaches in equity. She's the director of equity for her work. So as I got older and started you know, starting to do some of the training and stuff around diversity and inclusion, specifically in childcare programs and childcare centers. Um, my daughters were teenagers at the time. And so they used to get really frustrated with me because I, I pulled them in. I said, you got to help me. You know, I'm putting all this stuff together to take it in to be help train people on why it's so important to be diverse and inclusive in your childcare settings. And so they would get frustrated, but they would go with me and they would help me. And so now they're both doing the work, which is amazing. So they don't, didn't realize it at that time that I think I was instilling something in them uh, about the importance around this work that to today, now they are doing the work in their jobs. Wow. And, and you know, that as a parent, that is what you're supposed to do is introduce your children to the things that you're working on and also different possibilities of what they could become. I know my father did it with me. I'm so grateful that I had an active father in my life, um, mm-hmm. a proud black man who's always been there for his family. And 
I used to hate it when I used to have to go downtown Minneapolis and sell hot dogs with him. And I used to tell him all the time, of why are we selling hot dogs? Why can't we do this? Why can't we open a restaurant? And he explained to me that if I opened up a restaurant, I have to pay overhead. I have to hire different employees. I have to have this type of insurance and that type of insurance. That mm-hmm. way I'm, I'm not walking away with anything. If I have a hot dog cart, I can make $1,000 a day at this hot dog cart and not have to pay any overhead on it. Only thing I'm paying mm-hmm. for is my inspection fees and I'm paying for uh, the food cost and any license fees and that's it and that's a year thing so i pay that out all the way and it just things started clicking in my head when i got older it's like wow right that's running a successful business a successful small business is minimizing your expenditures and now i adopted that into everything i do i always tell people when we talk about financial literacy and i'm gonna go off on a little tangent um the, the most important thing is not how much money you make it's how much money you save and how less you spend and that's one of the principles my, principles my dad always taught me is you don't have to make a million dollars. Just try not mm. to spend that much once you do get that much. <laughs> right, you know, right. If you have $100,000 and right. you uh, spent 60000 how much did you make? Forty. If you made 80000 right. and you spent 30000 how much did you make? Fifty. Who made more money? The person who made less in revenue, <laughs> but, you know, but spent less. And to me, it's like, wow, you know, we just learn from our parents and you should listen oh, to yeah. them when they're giving you that advice. Absolutely. You would have a good conversation with my son. My son's a financial advisor in Phoenix and um, we have conversations about money all the time. And um, we have some arguments and we have some good conversations about money, but, and he's an African-American male advisor financial advisor for Merrill Lynch in Phoenix, which is a big to do. He's always so calm about his position and things like that, but he's doing the work and he's educating other people about finances. So, but he actually helped me a lot. And um, because one of the big barriers as being a self-publishing author is everything's on you. You have to pay for everything. It comes out of your pocket. And he helped me understand that you have to figure out how you're gonna finance this stuff. You know, so how are you going to pay for this stuff? My daughter actually helped me too on this. And so you have to think smart about money when you're doing it. You can't use your credit card, you know, to pay for everything. You have to figure out how you're going to uh, fund your passion, if, if you will. And um, so I figured it out. And so once I started selling some of the books, um, online it would automatically those funds will go back into paying the illustrator for printing and for all of those things um but um yeah finance is a huge part of it and finances also can be a huge barrier um i did start a kickstarter campaign which is there's nine days left on it and so i went that route for the first time um at the advice of another author who did it and was really successful at it so i said let me try this to see if this would help fund some of the finances uh for self-publishing and so it's still a wait and see and things like that and it's still a learning process for me right now but it's a it's a it's something to learn you know and finances is part of it you are a small business and you have to operate as a small business when you are an author or a self-publisher and um that's a huge amount of stress and it's a huge amount of things to learn and understand so with the Kickstarter, um, first off, how much success have you had so far? And where can people go to um, make a contribution? And then also where can people go to buy the book? So for Kickstarter, it is, um, you go to www.kickstarter.com and then you search for the two flowers. 
Um, and then you'll see my story and stuff on that page and you become a backer by contributing. So everybody, the minimum is $35 and you get a copy of the book, a signed copy of the book when you contribute via Kickstarter that way. Um, and so, and you have options. You can give more, you can give less if you want, but the minimum to get a copy of the book is uh, $35. And um, it's a great little uh, place for a lot of authors and, you know, people in the field, you know, the arts field and all kinds of field. I mean, people go on there even to fund their movies, their, their small, you know, films and stuff that they're doing. So um, it was an experience. It still is an experience. And I think it's a good experience because it helps you expose who you are as a, an emerging artist. And so we'll see how that goes. They're all or nothing campaign. So if I don't meet my goal of $3,000, then I get nothing and nobody's you know, uh, credit cards are charged or anything like that. So it's an all or nothing sort of plat crowdfunding platform. Uh, but to buy the book, which people can do now, um, I'm happy to say I ordered my second batch of books of 100. And um, they can go to www.lncbookworks.com. And the LNC in my small business means leading, nurturing, and cultivating young minds. So I, it was important to me to have a foundational acronym uh, that really spoke to everything that I'm trying to do. Wow, that's amazing. I'll make sure to include the link um, to both the crowdsourcing page and also the link to your business page where people can go and buy the book. Um, I need to get a copy myself just to support yeah. you and also to read. Uh, my girlfriend's a kindergarten teacher, and I'm Thank sure she'd love to read the book to her children there. Um, so we definitely need to get us a, a couple copies. So. Yeah, Elijah, if I can say one more thing about that. The book is actually um, available on Amazon, too, which is a whole thing to learn how to upload your book and start to partner with uh, KDP, Kindle Publishing, Direct Publishing. And I have to say that Amazon is really out there for self-publishers. They really, really want to work with self-publishers because they have classes and tutorials and how to do this, how to create your book in ebook format. They are really um, reaching out to self-publishers to work with them. And it's pretty simple. Well, no, let me not say that. It's, it little, takes a little bit of work to um, get your book in the right format to upload in KDP. And the thing about it is they won't take it if it's not in the right format and stuff like that. But because of it being on Amazon, um, both Miley's Magical Curls and The Two Flowers are on Amazon. But because of it being on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles has picked up on it. And so there's a, a, a section in, in KDP where as a self-publisher, you can say, do you want your book to go expanded distribution, which means all over the world. But it also means that you can expand it to booksellers and to schools and other institutions that buy books in bulk. So I had clicked that when I um, uh, put my book on Amazon KDP and um, Barnes and Noble somehow noticed it because somebody called me and they said, did you know your book is on Barnes and Noble? And it's like, no, I didn't know that. Um, but they have since picked it up as well. Wow, that is amazing. So on Barnes and Noble, you all can find um, both Miley's uh, Magical Curls 
and then also the two flowers. I think it's just the two flowers right just now. The they did just the two flowers. Yeah, and I think it's because of its message of you know helping children understand social inequality and discrimination. I think that's probably why they picked it up. I haven't seen Miley's Magical Curls on there yet, but I'll have to look. Okay, well, hopefully Miley's Magical Curls will be on there soon. But for those who are watching this, you can, guys can go to Barnes and Noble and you can find the two flowers. And also it's on Amazon as well. Yes, yeah. uh, that is amazing, Linda. Um, thank you for joining us um, for today's episode. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. Take care, Linda. Talk to All you right. soon.